Hello, this is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Q1370 WQLL. Catholic Baltimore is a weekly radio program hosted by the Archdiocese of Baltimore, airing each Sunday following the broadcast of the Radio Mass of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic radio partners for sharing with us some of the contents in this program and for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to the Archdiocese of Baltimore every Sunday. This is Sean Kane, and you're listening to Catholic Baltimore. Of all the difficult tasks one has to perform in the course of an average day, being present seems like the easiest and maybe even the least important. After all, how often do we hear that just showing up isn't good enough? Well, maybe it is. Joining us by phone today to talk about his new book, Availability, The Challenge and the Gift of Being Present, is noted Catholic author and professor emeritus at Loyola University, Maryland, Dr. Robert Wicks. Dr. Wicks, thanks for being with us today. Uh, It's a pleasure. So let's get right into your book, which I think focuses on a really fascinating topic and one that not a lot of people probably give much thought to. So before I ask you about your idea to write the book on this topic, how about we begin with what you define as availability in your book? Sure. I see availability as the freedom to be truly present, to be open to relationship uh, with yourself, others, and God in the most elegant sense of of the term. And you you mentioned in your book that that the idea for this took root some 30 years ago. Is that right? Yes, it was conceived and written at what I felt was an especially uh, grace time in my life. I had gone up to Harvard to visit with Henry Nouwen, who was teaching there at the time. And we sat in his kitchen speaking about a book I was going to write on the gift of availability. And his response was that availability wasn't simply a gift, but also a major problem for many of us. And he felt uh, that the scriptural theme of pruning was one I should use to demonstrate that undisciplined availability, it, it led to burnout. Whereas if we pruned our availability and ensured time for ourselves and God, uh, our presence to others would bloom even more fully. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously an issue that a lot of us face, especially, you know, young families, but professionals, um, all genders, really all ages, that we're so busy that there isn't, you know, there isn't time unless we make time. That's right. That's right. And availability is both complex and simple. How is that? Well, availability is simple in the sense that all of us can open ourselves up to relationship. I mean, we know that. Yet it is also not easy and somewhat complex in the sense that the balance between presence to others, ourself, and God is often not there. Some of us are too available, as you mentioned, often for reasons that are not thought out and corrected. Others unnecessarily pull back because of anxiety. So the whole issue of availability was indeed worth spending a book on, a little book anyway. And you write that being present is an opportunity to be spiritual. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, spirituality is openness to the truth with a capital T. Uh, When we're present in the now rather than in the silver casket of nostalgia, Mm -hmm or off in the future in our minds doing all these great things. We have a real opportunity to touch the holy in our encounters with others, ourselves, and in prayer. Um, James Joyce said of one of his characters, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. (laughs) And I think, unfortunately, we're like that. We're not at home spiritually and psychologically most of the time. 
And with availability, true availability, we can be present in ways that we don't miss the presence of God that is all around and within us. And maybe it's a smile on an older person's face as we help her up, the laughter of a little child and seeing snowfall, a laughter of a little child, or seeing snow falling on snow or experiencing a moment of clarity or awareness in ourselves that's freeing. I think it's all there for the taking if we're aware in a good way. But once again, it's not easy, and that's why I spent so much time on this little book, Availability, the Challenge and Gift of Being Present. So on, on the practical side, are we talking about, you know, quiet time? Are we talking about, um, you know, calming our minds? Is there, are there practical things that we can, you know, tell people, look, if you want to be present, here's how to do it? Yeah, yeah. I think that that first uh, we have to we have to see the seriousness of it. Availability to self, uh, others, and God is the source of true joy and peace if it's done in, in an appropriately reflective manner. Uh, Catholic author and physician Walker Percy wrote in one of his novels, "What if life is like a plane and we miss it?" Well, that's easy to do today. You know, if we care about and are available to everyone and every demand, though, paradoxically, we're running to our grave and ignoring, in a real way, our family, friends, and those we meet, even ourselves, and certainly God. So, in terms of the practical, we need to seek to be aware of the crumbs of alone time. By alone time, I mean times in silence and solitude, and also times among people where we're reflective in ourself. And, and I think if we look, at, look for these crumbs of alone time, we'll see that they're already in our lives. Mm. You know, someone once said that life is something that happens while we're busy doing something else. Well, having at least a few moments of quiet time in the morning and at points during the day with the Lord... You know, when we do that, it happens. Um, so I, I, I suggest people don't add anything to your schedule. You've got too much on. Take a few moments, you know, before you get out of bed or in the shower or on the drive or walk to work. Take those reflectively. Now put yourself gently in the presence of God. During the day when you're running to the bathroom, you're going to get a cup of coffee, you're walking during lunch, take those moments sent to yourself, maybe with a word like Jesus, a word like gentle, a word like, word like compassion, to send to yourself, and it'll make a difference. Mm, yeah, because I think people's instincts today are to, um, you know, we're, we're riding to work, we're putting, we're putting the radio on, we're, we're running, we're working out, we're, we've got our iPods on, and yep. um, that, that yep. isn't necessarily helping us um, achieve that, that, uh, that, that place of center you're talking about. No, and I think if you just took 20 minutes out of the whole day, not adding the 20 minutes, but using the time that's mm-hmm. already there, that would be a beginning, and then it would create a hunger for more of that time. I really like the story you tell in your book about the time that you were in Ireland and you got lost, and um, when you stopped uh, to ask directions, you, you, you kind of had a, uh, an interesting moment. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was interesting. I was so lost at the time near an area called the Burren. Uh, And and the first time I I passed it, I thought, oh, this is lovely. The second time I said, oh, wow, you know, I'm glad I got a chance, even though I'm lost, to see it again. But when I circled it for the fourth time, I was pleased to see a farmer standing outside the gate to one of his pastures. 
And when I stopped, we wound up chatting not only about the directions to where I wanted to go, but also a number of other things as well. It was like he had known me all his life. And as I was driving away, I thought, you know, wasn't it nice that he took out the time from his day to converse, converse with me? But then, after driving a bit further, I realized that what actually happened when I pulled the car over to chat with him was that he made me part of his life. That's true availability. Yeah, amen. And you, you, when I read that, I couldn't help but wonder what would the situation have been like here, you know, whether it's in Baltimore or New York or any other, you know, busy city, you know, you probably would have gotten a very different response and certainly a different reaction. Yeah, and I, I don't think it has to be. No, that's right. You, there's a there's a section in your book uh, where you talk about clarity and the role of what you call mission and vision. Can you Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Clarity helps us gain, maintain, and regain a healthy sense of perspective. Yet it doesn't occur in a vacuum, and that was my point. It's inextricably bound to both personal mission and vision. People underestimate mission. Mission provides the basis and driving force for clarity, whereas vision provides the horizon that guides us and it leads us on each day, each year. Uh, Charles Kingsley, I quoted in the book, uh, notes, we, we act as though comfort and luxury were the chief requirements of life. When all we need to make us really happy is something to be enthusiastic about. So, so clarity and mission go hand in hand. Therefore, we, I think we need to ask ourselves what steps we need to take to become more of a critical thinker, a critical prayer, so we can catch ourselves when we're resisting clarity for some reason. Uh, one uh, topic that I really thought was interesting, um, or an insight rather, was you spoke about when you're when you're present to another person, you, you're gaining access into their lives for good or for bad. Um, and, and then you speak about how that process leads to greater self-knowledge. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, one of the greatest gifts we can share with others is a sense of our own peace and a healthy perspective. And so when we're present to others, we need to ask ourselves what factors Maybe it's neediness, a desire to be seen in a certain positive way, fear of being misunderstood, a uh, wish to be appreciated for what we do, great need for success, or extreme self-doubt or inordinate self-confidence is blocking us from having a more loving relationship and, and how we might deal with such blocks in ourselves in a gentle, clear manner. Dr. Robert Wicks, author of Availability, The Challenge and the Gift of Being Present. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, the only thing I would add to you is the message of this book is simple but important. It's love God deeply, do what you can for others, and please take good care of yourself. Thank you. Dr. Wicks, thanks so much. Catholic news from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world from the Catholic Review. The Archdiocese of Baltimore gained two new auxiliary bishops this week, as Bishop Adam J. Parker and Bishop Mark E. Brennan were ordained January 19th at the Cathedral of Mary Our Queen in Homeland. The new bishops join Archbishop William E. Lorry in serving the Archdiocese, which covers 4,800 square miles in Maryland, reaching as far as the West Virginia border. Bishop Parker has been a priest of the Archdiocese since 2000 and is currently Vicar General and Moderator of the Curia, responsibilities he will continue to hold. He is now one of the youngest Catholic bishops in the country. Bishop Brennan has been a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington since 1976, serving most recently as pastor of St. Martin of Tours Parish in Gaithersburg. 
He speaks English, Spanish, and French, and will have a primary role in serving the Hispanic community as auxiliary bishop. In his homily at the ordination mass, Archbishop Lurie noted that both bishops selected an Episcopal motto related to evangelization. Bishop Parker's motto is, Go, make disciples. Bishop Brennan chose Docete Omnes Gentes, which is Latin for Teach All Nations. In his homily, the Archbishop said the risen Lord commissioned his apostles and their successors, which includes the new bishops, first and foremost to be evangelizers, people who proclaim and bear witness to the gospel, and shepherds whose chief concern is to gather in truth and love all those entrusted to them in God's flock. Archbishop Lurie added that a bishop must be deeply convinced that proclaiming and spreading the gospel is not merely one of the church's tasks among many, but a mission that shapes the church's very identity. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, this is Christopher Gunty. Do you want to know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? Read the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the church full-time, the Catholic Review. Pick up the print magazine monthly at your parish or have the Catholic Review delivered to your home every month. You can get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to the Catholic Review e-newsletter for twice-a-week updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Find our app on Apple and Android. And follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Wherever your faith takes you, Catholic Review Media is ready to inspire, teach, inform, and engage. Read it today, in print and online, at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. You are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Q1370 WQLL. This is Sean Kane, and you're listening to Catholic Baltimore. Our next guest has written a book that details the long, loud, and sometimes funny history of the relationship between Irish and Italian Catholics in New York. His book, An Unlikely Union, The Love-Hate Story of New York's Irish and Italians, cleverly and thoroughly chronicles the literal love-hate relationship between these two ethnic groups and is a must-read for any family that shares Irish and Italian blood. Paul Moses, thanks for being with us today. Thanks very much, Sean. It's good to be with you. So, uh, in full disclosure, I'm uh, Irish and Italian, as is my wife, so it didn't take much to pique my interest in your book, which is wonderfully written and researched. What made you write it? Well, thanks. Well, first of all, um, I'm half Italian on my mother's side of the family, and my, my wife, is uh, her ancestry is, in, is Irish. So that was certainly an inspiration. But I, I noticed that, that, you know, at one time, a marriage like ours, that yours, would uh, have stirred a lot of indignation, anger, resentment, but that hasn't been the case for me. And I think most people of Irish and Italian background who marry uh, have married each other in the last 30 or 40 years. And that, to me, was a story. How did we get from this place where there was all this anger and resentment to this place where, you know, pretty much people get along? So that's the arc of the story, and that's what made me want to write it. It's really a story about peacemaking. You must have had a fascinating and fun time researching the book. I really did. I would go through, you know, archives of old newspapers and correspondence, and I would come home to Maureen, my wife, and say, you never guess what I read about today. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and an opportunity, I would imagine, to interview some folks who maybe uh, weren't around for the bulk of the time that, that the story takes place in, but, um, you know, either had lived through part of it or, or certainly it had stories passed down to them. 
Yeah, and I interviewed uh, a number of Irish-Italian couples and kind of told the story of, of their relationships. And if you went back far enough in time, there was uh, some turmoil uh, to get to the point of, of marrying because their families were, were unhappy or standoffish. Uh, so, so it was fun to tell those love stories. So um, maybe we can start with a little bit of a history lesson on each of these two ethnic groups and, and their arrival in New York, um, if, uh, if that's okay. So maybe we'll begin with the Irish Sure. Well, the Irish uh, Catholics in particular began arriving in large numbers in the 1840s because of the, the Great Famine, although there were quite a few Irish in, in America before that, even in, in, during the Revolutionary War period. And they face it, as we know, a, a huge struggle in getting established in America and, and, and in New York City. And um, by about 1880, they, they were pretty well established because that was the year the first Irish Catholic mayor of New York was elected, uh, William R. Grace. And, uh, and mm-hmm. what were some of the challenges that they faced in general when they came over? We're talking about, well, you know, housing, well, work. Well, certainly there, were, there was anti-Catholic bias because even, even as late as 1880, the Times, New York Times did an editorial opposing Amar Grace's candidacy because, quote, New York is an American Protestant city. So that was the mindset that, that uh, the Irish Catholics faced. And, of course, there was their intense, intense poverty uh, that they came over with. And, and, and so, so these are some of the you know, serious obstacles they had. They, you know, did not come over, you know, well-trained uh, for work. There were uh, people who lived on uh, landless uh, tenants of farms. So, so they, they had uh, a lot of challenges ahead of them. That's for sure. And uh, how about the Italians? So the Italians don't start coming uh, in large numbers until that same year I mentioned, 1880. That's usually looked at as the um, as the uh, the turning point. And and they also were extremely poor. Uh, they were fleeing mostly from southern Italy because uh, the poverty had deepened there, uh, partly as a result of uh, policies of their 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 newly centralized government. So. So they came here in, in, in great numbers, and in New York they, they, they headed towards some of the same neighborhoods where the, the poorest of the Irish were living, uh, what we call the Five Points in, in lower Manhattan. So that's where the clash begins. So it's pretty ironic that they, uh, the Irish come over, face some tough conditions, get settled, start getting their feet under them politically, uh, financially, etc. And then the Italians come, and they face the very same kinds of conditions and prejudices, although uh, this time not just from the Protestant Americans who were here, but from the Irish themselves. Yeah, well, they, they had a lot of, in common because they were both Catholic in a Protestant city, and they were both uh, poor agricultural workers. So that's ex- actually what placed them in conflict. They were, they were uh, looking for the same jobs, and the Italians were willing to do um, the work that agricultural workers could do, which was basically construction uh, or maybe uh, heavy lifting jobs like working on the waterfront, they were willing to do that work for lower pay and for longer hours. And by this point, the Irish had been pretty good at establishing unions, and so they saw the Italians as, as a big threat to their, to their livelihoods, and that's, that's where conflict begins. So a, a key part of this book is the, the differences between these groups, and among them is the way they practice their faith. For, for some people... Um, all Catholicism is the same, but in reality, it's very different, especially when you talk about um, from a cultural standpoint. Can you talk about the differences uh, between 
the practice of Catholicism uh, among the Irish and the Italians? Well, the Italians came in with this uh, great uh, love and loyalty to the, to the saints, the Blessed Mother. Uh, the Irish, the, the priests, who are mostly Irish-Americans, saw them as being uh, anti-clerical. That has, ties in with the history of the Church in Italy, actually. And, and not as mass-goers, they didn't uh, donate enough money to the Church. So, uh, so the Irish approach was more focused on the sacraments and attending Mass, obedience, uh, doing what the priest asks you to do. The Italian approach was more at home in, in a lot of ways, uh, this kind of ongoing conversation with the saints and the Blessed Mother. So, and, and, of course, the feasts uh, celebrated in the streets uh, were also a big part of the Italian approach. September the 20th is an important date in this uh, conversation. Uh, what happens on this date? It is. In 1870, that's when the Italians, uh, nationalists, uh, finally conquered Rome from the Pope and completed the unification of Italy. It's uh, a very uh, important day for Italians, but for the Irish of that time and for quite a while after, it was a dark day because it was the day the Pope was defeated, and the Irish were very loyal to the Pope, and I think uh, part of their own identity as a nation uh, or as an aspiring nation in those days, uh, was tied up in their loyalty to the Pope because of it. You know that they were Catholic and uh, opposed to British rule, uh, British Protestant rule of Ireland. So, so it's uh, made for conflict. And uh, some of the Irish uh, they likened it to uh, uh, July 12th, Orangemen's Day, which you know dates back to 1690, a battle that gave the Protestants the upper hand. In, in Ireland, and uh, so, 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 yeah, it, it was an unhappy day for the Irish and a, an happy day for the Italians, and there were clashes over that. So um, we have these two large ethnic groups in, in New York, um, you know, with some similarities, whether they admit them or not, but obviously some huge differences. Um, how does it, uh, how long does it take for, for this uh, kind of surprising uh, uh, coming together of these two groups, and maybe talk a little bit about uh, your theory for you know what what eventually led to uh, some harmony, if you will. Sure, it takes decades, and the dispute that I think begins over jobs spills over into other areas, including the church, and into politics, into the civil service, unions, and so forth, uh, and the church, uh, in some ways, was a battleground initially for the two. But I think it plays a role in bringing them together over time as Italians go to Catholic schools, uh, trained by uh, Irish uh, nuns and Irish-American nuns and priests, and, 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 and just p- people do eventually begin to get to know each other through the Church and through other places. As the Italians move up economically, they uh, are mingling in the same workplaces with the Irish, mingling as equals, I should say. It's no longer necessarily the case after a while if the Irish person is the foreman. Uh, so so that, that mingling as equals in, at work, in recreational activities, in associations like the KFC or veterans groups after World War II, uh, basically as people get to know each other as equals, they find that they like each other. That's kind of the arc of the story. They realize- and as I said, the Church... Uh, does play an important role in that. The research shows that the Italians who um, took Irish partners in those years after World War II were almost always those who went to Catholic schools and you know, were practicing Catholics, uh, went to, were mass goers. 
So the the church uh, seems to have played a, a pivotal role in in bringing these folks together. You know, obviously not intentionally, but that, that it seems to me it's undeniable that at least it put these two groups together um, in a way that allowed them to realize their similarities. There were certainly uh, you know Irish American priests in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries century and and nuns who were very consciously uh, working to assimilate uh, Italians into American ways. Uh, or into uh, really kind of an Irish understanding of the, of the American <laughs> way. So that, that it, in some ways, it, it was, uh, as you could say, it was intentional. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> uh, Paul, uh, one last point I wanted to touch on, because I think it's a poignant one, is, is one that you make towards the end of the book, which is to posit that uh, perhaps the, the, very, um, the very thing that allowed these two groups to put their differences aside and, and, um, and, and come together, if you will, might also help to um, put an end or at least um, to uh, hasten an end to the uh, difficulty with race relations in this country. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, at one time, only the, the biggest optimists would have ever imagined that the Irish and the Italians would be marrying each other and joking about their one-time differences. And so the, the, the same kinds of factors that Drew them together over time could even apply could apply to other ethnic groups and even to you know our most difficult issue in America race relations and and again you know somebody saying that may may sound may sound ridiculously optimistic given all the tensions we have in our society over race but there are factors uh, and basically what it boils down to is when people mingle as equals. They, they can get to know and like each other, and the social barriers uh, from the past begin to fall away. Uh, I drew on the work of a sociologist named Richard Alba, who's written a fine book uh, on this idea, and I look closely at the Irish-Italian relationship. And so I do think there, there can be the hope that other ethnic groups or even uh, interracial groups can, uh, can heal some of the uh, rifts that there are between them, no matter how deep the history. Paul Moses, author of An Unlikely Union, The Love-Hate Story of New York's Irish and Italians. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks very much, Sean. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Baltimore. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless us and keep us always in his love.